Father in heaven, bless us now as we spend some time looking at these two incredible chapters. Father, first with Jesus in the trial before Annas and Caiaphas, and then as we reflect on Judas and uh, the, the demise and destruction of Judas' life and the loss of incredible potential that was available there. Uh, Father, be with us now. May we have sober minds. May we have minds that are attentive to your spirit, not just in a general sort of study sense, but Father, may your spirit whisper to us the things that we need to hear because there's stuff in here I need to hear. There's details in here that others need to hear. Father, may we be open to those things and not just open to them, but Father, may we then make the decision by your grace to apply the counsel of the spirit so that we can emerge from this DA with DA exercise, not just more enlightened, not just more aware of the life of Jesus, but Father, more um, following and more, more exhibiting and more behaving and thinking and talking like Jesus did. Father, he is our example and we wanna live like he lived. We wanna love like he loved. So be with us now, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hush, Jerome, all the way from Kenya. Oh, somebody's asking if Violetta is the surprise. Well, the answer to that, I can say, is no. Good guess. Uh, Violetta is my wife. She's my first wife. And she is an amazing surprise. She's the best wife I've ever had, by far. No comparison, literally. Um, But she would sooner stub her toe or kick rocks than be in a public setting like this. She just, she's not wired that way. She's absolutely amazing in social situations and you get her one-on-one, but you, you get her up front or you, you, she just doesn't, she's, you know, there's, there's in front of the camera people and behind the camera people. And Violetta, she likes to just, she's a behind the scenes worker. She's amazing. Okay. We've got a lot to read here from scripture. Look at this based on Matthew 26, Matthew 27, Mark 14, Mark 15, Luke 22, John 18. Okay, we got a lot to read. And I think I might have actually left my Bible at the church yesterday. So I'm using just one that I found on the shelf. Looks like it's the NIV version. So we're gonna start in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 57. 26 beginning in verse 57. Looks like it's all the way to the end of the chapter. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, so I'm in Matthew chapter 26. We're gonna read a few of these because there's just too many details here. We're not gonna leave them out. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? 
Verse 69. Now, Peter was sitting in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you were talking about, he said. Then he went out of the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're, you're one of them. Your, your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a, roos a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. That's the end of Matthew chapter 26. Okay, let's now, oh, Matthew chapter 27, verse one. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders and all the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. We're not quite there yet. Okay, now let's read, uh, I'm gonna skip the Mark 14 section. Let's read Luke 22. I know I'm picking on Mark. I don't read a lot of Mark. Um, but that's because Mark is often known for his brevity and I'm looking for the little details. Mark does sometimes have some of those things that the other writers don't, but I'm, I'm just gonna go with Luke here and I also wanna read John. So Luke 22, 54. Luke 22. Luke, the journalist, Luke, the compiler. Uh, he often has little precious details that augment what we find in Matthew and Mark. Okay, Luke 22, beginning in verse 54. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are also one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you were talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. There's a detail. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insults and many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders and all the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Okay, and then finally, John 18, 13 to 27. John 18. I'm gonna soak up every bit of this. John 18, what did I say? 13 to 27. Okay, here we go. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna begin in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers, uh, where am I at? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. 
Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty, and there, there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He said, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearly, or nearby, excuse me, slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, they demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, well, that's inconvenient, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Okay, we read Matthew and Luke and John there. We could also read Mark 14, but in the interest of time, we've got to, we've got to shape, and it's so good to read all of these accounts because what Ellen White does here, once again, is a masterful job of bringing all of the passages together and then keeping the thread, keeping the thread, and bring, okay, this happened here, and then this happened here, and, and she, she just has such a, uh, sense of the passage, the passages, that she does a wonderful job of just pulling it all together. So what we're going to talk about in our first chapter, this is chapter 75, before Annas and the court of Caiaphas, chapter 75. Um, basically what we have in this chapter is Jesus being shuttled from place to place, first to Annas, then to Caiaphas, then to the Sanhedrin, and one of the themes that emerges in this chapter, and I'm sure you detected it, you'd, you'd have to really try to have missed this, is the uh, theme of, of haste and of things being hurried and, and moved along very quickly. And, and Ellen White goes into why that is, right? They were on the verge of Passover and they wanted to get this done in the night, just like Judas had gone out into the night. And they wanted to have everything lined up, all of their ducks in a row, all of their I's dotted and their T's crossed so that when morning came, they could have a quick trial and they could get all of this done before Passover because they were afraid that if they didn't get it done, that people would hear about it, that witnesses would start to come forward, people that had been healed, people that had traveled with Jesus or heard his teachings would, would begin to sort of rally together and there would be pressure put on the religious leaders. And so there's, there's this strong sense that, hey, this is our moment. You know, the thing that we've wanted to do for some time, we've done it, we've got it. We are in possession of this man that has been so troublesome to us over these last several years. We can't let this opportunity slip. And so they're gonna make this happen and they're gonna make it happen quickly. And so again and again, she uses these ideas of hurrying and haste. In fact, let's just read the first paragraph. And uh, that, that occurs two times, just in the first paragraph. Over the brook of Kidron, past the gardens and olive groves and through the hushed streets of the sleeping city, they hurried Jesus. It was past midnight and the cries of the hooting mob that followed him broke sharply upon the still air. Can't you see this in your mind's eye? The savior was bound and closely guarded 
and he moved painfully. Well, of course he moved painfully because he's just come out of the incomprehensible Gethsemane experience and he's still struggling. You know, his, he thought his frame was gonna burst apart. He didn't think his humanity could have handled the situation. And so he's moving laboriously and with great pain. Uh, but it, in eager haste, there it is the second time, his captors made their way with him to the place. Okay, someone's trying to call me. I have to call them back. Uh, let's just read the second paragraph as well. Annas was the head of the officiating priestly family. By the way, Bernice, that was your daughter, Nadja. Tell her not to call me back until I'm done. <laughs> Annas was the head of the officiating priestly family, and in deference to his age, he was recognized by the people as the high priest. His counsel was sought and carried out as the voice of God. Ooh, that's always dangerous. Anytime you regard some man's voice as the voice of God, that's problematic and dangerous. Dangerous for you and for them, for the person that's regarded thus. He must first see Jesus a captive to priestly power. He must be present at the examination of the prisoner for fear that the less experienced Caiaphas might fail of securing the object for which they were working. His artifice, cunning, and subtlety must be used on this occasion. For at all events, Christ's condemnation must be secured. Um, next paragraph says that this was a preliminary trial. Christ was to be tried formally before the Sanhedrin, the Council of Seventy, but before Annas was subjected to a preliminary trial. Under the Roman rule, the Sanhedrin, okay. So the Sanhedrin didn't have the prerogative to end the life of Jesus. They could not administer capital or terminal punishments. And so they've got to handle this situation very carefully. Uh, they can't overstep their bounds. And one of the things that's going to emerge here is that you have a confederacy of both Herodians, Sadducees, and Pharisees who hate one another, who are actually afraid of Jesus for very different reasons. And so they're, they're tiptoeing a bit of a, a, a tight wire here because they've, they've got to, they've got to, you, you get the sense here that they know that the situation could, could go south very quickly, that maybe there would be an internal argument amongst them, or maybe the Romans would step in and say, hey, what are you doing? So, so they're handling the situation as carefully as can be. They're doing it at night so they can sort of get things moving and, and get a kind of momentum as the day comes. Okay, and so you get that strong sense there. She then says... Um, she quotes Nicodemus in that next paragraph there. Nicodemus had said back in John chapter seven, does our law, the Jewish law, judge a man before it hears of him and knows what he is doing. I really thought this was interesting. In that third paragraph there, she says that there were quite a few priests that were actually sympathetic to Jesus. Quite a few of the religious leaders in the, in the presence of Annas and Caiaphas, she says, but... They were afraid to speak out, right? Or it remained to be seen whether or not they would speak out. She says, not a few among the priests and rulers had been convicted by Christ's teaching and only fear of excommunication prevented them from confessing him. No doubt these will be some of those that will become the believers after the resurrection, right? When the book of Acts records that a great number of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so there were people there, but it would have been, it would have taken a special kind of courage and bravery to have spoken up for Jesus in that situation. Because again, we've already talked about mob mentality and people getting together in a group and, and there's a bunch of thermometers and one thermostat. And clearly Annas here and Caiaphas and a few of the others are the thermostats. They're setting the temperature. And a lot of people are just sort of observing Jesus bearing his attitude, his demeanor, which Ellen White takes great efforts to make it clear that, in fact, one of, the, one of the great features of this chapter is the incredible contrast 
between the fury and the anger and the indignation and the haste and the energy of all of those that are trying to secure the condemnation of Jesus and Jesus' poise, his dignity, his calmness, his self-possession, right? That, that is purposefully made over and over again. Uh, so then she says there were two charges that they were seeking to uh, bring against Jesus. One was a primarily Jewish charge within the context of Judaism and the Jewish law, and the other was a Roman charge. She says that they were, number one, uh, he was a blasphemer, and number two, that they were going to try to tie him to some kind of sedition, right? That, that Jesus was going to start this like secret movement, and he was going to you know, launch a rival kingdom. And uh, in a way, he was, but the kingdom that he was launching was not an obvious and immediate threat to Rome. Now, of course, it's a giant threat to Rome and to all empire, but that's not perceived at this point. And so the charges, at least in the way that they understand them, are, are unfounded. Okay, so then she says that Jesus stands before Annas and, and just reads him like an open book. Like he, there we go. I lost my internet there for just a bit. Um, and remember, just remember, let me say this. If anything ever goes wrong with the Instagram live stream, we record this and it'll upload within about 24 hours to my YouTube channel. So if everything goes completely south, we're recording it and you can always go find it there. But back to the point, they're completely beside themselves with Jesus' non-response, with the calmness and the dignity and the self-possession. And so, so the slap across the face is designed to purposely, purposely designed to elicit a response. Like they're trying to get him to lash out. Then the paragraph that begins, Christ calmly replied. Christ calmly replied, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? I love the fact that Jesus is always asking probing, piercing, penetrating questions of people. Why, why did you hit me? Why? Can't you just see that? I can imagine that the guy was like, whoa, he's never had that happen before. Just total calm, you know, self-possessed, dignified. Hey, why, why did you strike me? Did I say something worthy of being hit? He spoke no burning words of retaliation. His calm answer came from a heart sinless, patient, and gentle that would not be provoked. Then this paragraph, I thought this was great. Incredible. Christ suffered keenly under abuse and insult at the hands of the beings whom he had created. Whoa. And for whom he was making an infinite sacrifice, he received every indignity. And he suffered in proportion to the perfection of his holiness and his hatred of sin, which means he suffered infinitely, incomprehensibly, just like Gethsemane because he was perfectly holy. And if he suffered in proportion to his perfection and to his holiness, then he suffered infinitely, incomprehensibly. To be surrounded by human beings under the control of Satan was revolting to him. And he knew that in a moment, by the flashing forth of his divine power, he could lay his cruel tormentors in the dust. Now she's gonna say something three times, and this is the first time she says it. This made the trial the harder to bear. Okay, this is not a superhero movie where, where the person that's on trial, the person that's perceived as the underdog or the person that's perceived as a nobody actually possesses superhuman power. And at just the moment when they're seeking to undermine his credibility or charge him falsely or something, the superhero like reveals who he is and lashes out and destroys everybody in a grand fight, 
right? There wouldn't have even been a fight here. Jesus is in possession of power, quite unlike that of Superman or Iron Man or the Incredible Hulk or all these other, you know, modern deities. Jesus could have just thought himself out of this situation. And she says, for the first of three times here, that availability to him, that fire alarm, that exit made it harder, right? Like if if I was under significant duress and and being accused and treated with every indignity, I couldn't extract myself from that situation. So that's not a temptation for me. In the same way that caused these stones to be made bread is not a temptation for me, right? Or cast yourself down from the temple because it's all going to be okay is not a temptation for me. This would not have been a temptation for me to just lash out. I mean, I could lash out and then they would just wrestle me under control. But Jesus could have just thought a thought and instantaneously everyone would have known who he was, would have known how wrong they were and would have all just been immediately either. I mean, Jesus has options available to him here. He can just think them out of existence. He can uh, think them into humility, you know, like not like humility born out of the heart, but just an awareness that he is in possession of infinite power. He could have had them all on their face in a moment. And so she says, for the first of three times, this made that trial harder to bear. This is not a superhero movie. This is the anti-hero story. Jesus is the anti-hero. He doesn't show up like Iron Man, Spider-Man, or Batman. He's a totally different kind of superhero, an infinitely better superhero. Not a superhero that we would make and create. Something that only God could create and, and be. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to be revealed in outward show. They expected him by one flash of overmastering will to change the current of men's thoughts and force from them an acknowledgement of his supremacy. Thus they believed he was to secure his own exaltation and gratify their ambitious hopes. Second time here. Thus when Christ was treated with contempt, there came to him a strong temptation to manifest his divine character. Second time. She's going to say it a third time here. By a word, by a look, he could compel his persecutors to confess that he was Lord above kings and rulers, priests and temple. But it was, third time, a difficult task to keep to the position that he had chosen as one with humanity. Okay, so one of the features of Ellen White's writings is to say something that matters a lot over and over again. Repetition deepens impression. And the last time we were together, we noted, you know, eight times, let's just remind ourselves, the eight times where Jesus was hoping, yeah, it was eight, eight times where Jesus was hoping that his disciples would have sympathized with him in prayer. He was yearning, he was longing, he was hoping, he was desiring, he was needing. She says that eight times. Here in the course of just about a paragraph and a half, she says, this was hard for Jesus. This was hard for Jesus. This was hard for Jesus. The temptation was there to just put an end to this uh, kangaroo court, to this you know, uh, trampling of justice and to assert himself as he was. And that was his divine prerogative and right to do it. It wouldn't have been sinful for him to have revealed who he was. In other words, he could have done it and he wouldn't have been in the wrong. Now, man would have been, mankind would have been a casualty of Jesus doing that because the plan of salvation would have been thwarted, right? Because Jesus would have not died. He would have not shed his blood. So he could have done it. He would have been full well within his divine rights to do it. It would not have been immoral or sinful, but he does not do it out of love for us, out of love for us. So he subjugates his own personhood, his own divinity, his, his own character and stature as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, not because he's under a moral compulsion to do so, but because he loves us. 
Incredible. They, then she then in the next paragraph talks about how the angels looked on, how the angels could have and would have intervened at a moment's notice, just as Jesus had said in Gethsemane, don't you think I could call my father? And he would send more than 12 legions of angels right now. So Jesus, you know, he's got that, he's got his finger, so to speak, on the trigger. At any moment, he can just change it. He doesn't even need to move his finger. He can just think. He can say a word. He can give a look. Um, she then says a little bit later in that paragraph that he endured this uncomplainingly, which I really liked the use of that word. I like turning uncomplaining into an adverb there, that he bore all of this uncomplainingly. And then the last sentence of that paragraph, the only hope of humanity was in the submission of Christ to all that he could endure from the hands and hearts of men. Right, the only hope. The, oh, this is it. Jesus has to keep his divinity and his ontology, his, his native ontology as God under submission to his desire to save mankind. Absolutely incredible. Uh, next paragraph that begins, Christ had said nothing. Uh, she says that this thing was a pretense of justice and a form of a legal trial. And this, the, the, the authorities were then determined to hasten, right? That we've talked about that. They're trying to move this along. And so um, they're, they're moving him along. So Annas doesn't have any particular success this sort of private pretrial interview. So Annas is like, you get the sense he's exasperated. Jesus' manner, his calmness, his dignity and self-possession. So he just in exasperation says, okay, go see the high priest. So he sends him off to Caiaphas. Um, the paragraph that begins, when the council had assembled in the judgment hall, that's just a couple paragraphs later, jump down to the bottom of that paragraph, last two sentences, last two or three sentences there. The excitement was intense as Jesus is being shuttled from place to place. Of all the throng, he alone was calm and serene. Wow, that's a scene. How many people are there? 200, 100, 300? I don't know. But everybody's agitated. Everybody's excited. Everybody's got this sort of feverish, mobbish energy about them, except Jesus. Jesus is perfectly calm, perfectly, I love the use of the word serene here. Right, in the same way that you would look longingly at a sunset, you know, setting over a calm lake, just taking it all in. There's no agitation there. There's no anger there. There's just peace, serenity, calm. And that's Jesus. Everybody else around him is like a storm of human fury and energy and indignation and confusion. And Jesus is just like, it reminds me of when the disciples had arrived on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and the demoniacs from the Gadarenes came running at Jesus. And they're all like back in the boat, like, you know, you know, looking up to sea. And Jesus is just standing there just totally calm, completely calm, resting in his father's love and care. She says the very atmosphere, whoa, the very atmosphere surrounding him seemed pervaded by a holy presence. Okay, then the paragraph that begins, Caiaphas regarded Jesus as his rival. The eagerness of the people to hear the Savior and their apparent readiness to accept his teachings had aroused the bitter jealousy. Aha, here we go. But listen to what happens next. This is very Judas-like. Remember Judas in the upper room when Jesus begins to wash the feet of Judas? Judas was like, he had this thrill of excitement go through him that at that very moment he could have just said, Oh, okay, I, I, I'm, I betrayed you and I'm sorry and I made a bad mistake and oh, can you ever forgive me in that moment? Like he was, was right there on the precipice. He could have done the right thing, but then he quickly jettisoned that thought and just 
concretized himself, hardened himself in, no, I'm going to be, no real Messiah would be washing dirty feet. And so he just instantly shifts. That's what happens here. Check this out. Uh, his teachings had aroused the bitter jealousy of the high priest, but as Caiaphas now looked upon the prisoner, he was struck with admiration. Whoa, I underline that. For his noble and dignified bearing, a conviction came over him. Whoa, that this man was akin to God. The next instant, though, he scornfully banished the thought. Immediately, his voice was heard in sneering, haughty tones, demanding that Jesus work one of his mighty miracles before them. But his words fell upon the Savior's ears as though he heard them not. The people compared the excited malignant deportment or attitude of Annas and Caiaphas with, here we go again, the calm, majestic bearing of Jesus. Contrast, contrast. Even in the minds of the hardened multitude, the question arose, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Is, is this man here of godlike presence, fascinating use of language there, to be condemned as a criminal? Okay, so there's a lesson for us here, and that is that when we're given the opportunity to respond to the thrill, the sensation that we should repent and confess right now, we should do it. Because if you don't, you don't just get to, you know, nicely back away from that conviction. Very often, you're like ricocheted into the opposite. That's what happened with Judas, and that's what happens here with Caiaphas, right? Like when conviction comes and you are under the... Uh, the, 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 the strong sense from the spirit and from your own conscience that you should do or you shouldn't do, and then you ignore that, you don't just get to sort of stay in a homeostatic space in that tension. No, very often you're like slingshotted into the very opposite of the door that was just open to you. It's like the door slams, and then you find yourself in outer darkness. Happened with Judas, happened with Caiaphas. And the lesson here for us is, whoa, Sin is not something to play with. That's what we're going to talk about in just a bit with Judas. Conviction is not something to play with. When the Spirit comes, he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Uh, the Spirit of God is not to be trifled with because when we get ourselves right up to that moment of possible sensitivity and sensibility, if we don't respond to it, we can ricochet or slingshot into full satanic folly and fury. That's what happens here. Um... Let's see. Oh, this was quite interesting. The next paragraph, beginning Caiaphas, perceiving the influence that he was obtaining, hastened the trial. This is where she goes into detail about how Jesus perceived and discerned that there was a tenuous tightrope walk of a trial here because the Sadducees and the Herodians are viewing Jesus and his danger, his perceived danger, in a different way and his perceived blasphemy in a different way than the Pharisees were. And Jesus could have just said, a certain set of words to have ignited hostility between them and the whole thing could have come apart and likely Jesus could have you know, extracted himself from the situation, not by miraculous means, which of course is always available to him, but just by reading the situation, Jesus in a very human way could have just said a few things to have you know, ignited the, the acrimony and the hatred between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the whole thing could have fallen apart very quickly, very readily. Jesus could have aligned himself with the Sadducees in one way or with the Pharisees in another and the, the hostility between them would have given Jesus an opportunity to, it would have caused a mess and he could have gotten away. She says that. She says that. 
Um, I'm turning the page now to page 828, 705 of the original. She says that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at sword's points. And this evidence also would have no weight with the Romans, right? The fact that, that uh, he was some sort of a blasphemer by the Jewish standards, right? There was abundant evidence that he had disregarded the traditions of the Jews and had spoken irreverently of many of their ordinances. But in regard to tradition, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at sword's points, and this evidence would have no weight with the Romans. They could have cared less about the you know, peculiarities uh, of the you know, Jewish religion. Um, Christ's enemies, Christ's enemies. I thought this was fascinating. They dared not accuse him of Sabbath breaking because if they accuse him of Sabbath breaking, then the whole thing regarding when he healed and many of his most powerful and provocative miracles were performed on the Sabbath. So they can't say the Sabbath breaking thing because that's gonna raise up. Oh yeah, but that was for healing. That was for restoration. And then the character of Jesus and of his ministry would have been given you know, a venue to have been on display. They're just trying to paint Jesus here as dangerous, subversive, a blasphemer. And so they cannot even create a little window or a little opportunity for Jesus' true character to be on display. And so the charge of Sabbath breaking couldn't be marshaled. It was too dangerous. It was too dangerous. So they finally found one, she says, that the Romans, the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees could all agree on this one. Somebody comes forward, and says, oh, I know what it is. This guy said that he would destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days. And that was blasphemous to everybody, right? The Sadducees can't you know, brook that. Neither can the Pharisees, neither can the Romans. And so finally they've landed on something. Then the paragraph that begins on page 829, 706, 707 of the original, patiently Jesus listed to the conflicting testimonies no word did he utter in self-defense. At last, his accusers were entangled, confused, and maddened. Beginning of the next paragraph, Jesus held his peace. And I thought, let's just, let's just dwell for a moment on that. We often use that term like she held her peace or he held his peace. But I just love it in this context that he held, he grasped, he maintained his peace, his calm, his dignity his sense of who he was, because he knew who he was. This is cool. And anything that could be said about him in that room with all of their, what does she say, confused, entangled, and maddened perspective could in, could in no way diminish who Jesus was or what he stood for. And, and there's a really good lesson in this for us. If we are secure in who we are and we know who we are in Christ and we're, we're confident of our identity in Christ as the, the redeemed sons and daughters of God, then if somebody makes an accusation against us that's unfounded and fallacious, well, we shouldn't be aroused by that. We shouldn't rally to that. We should keep our peace. We should hold to our peace because the things that are being said are not true, right? Like my sons, they used to come home occasionally. This is when they were oh, probably a few years ago, but they used to come home and say, oh, dad, this situation happened at school today and, and you know somebody thought this and somebody thought, and I would just say, well, then you have the consolation of truth. If, if those things that they're saying are not true, well, then you shouldn't be stimulated by them or aroused by them. You have the consolation of knowing the truth, the truth about you. They can't see what's going inside of your heart, going on inside of your heart. So, so the truth is your consolation. And as teenagers, you know, this wasn't entirely satisfactory. They're like, yeah, but dad, they said, and that's not. And I said, I get it. I understand that. But are you sure? Could there be any 
possible cause for them, a reason for them to say what they've said? No. No, Dad, it's totally manufactured. They've just made it up. Da, 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 da. They, he, okay, well then if that's true, if what you're saying is true, then let that be your consolation. God sees, God knows, you know. Hold to your peace. So I just love that there. Jesus held his peace. And then she quotes Isaiah 53, 7, that he was led uh, as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. He did speak, but he didn't open his mouth in self-defense, right? Or in condemnation of the, of the trampling of justice that was taking place at his expense. Um, so then finally, you know, this whole thing's going nowhere. Uh, Caiaphas tears his garments and does this whole, like in the old King James, I adjure you, or in the more modern translations, I put you under oath by the living God, i.e., by Yahweh, i.e. by the guy that's standing in front of you right now. Of course, that's not known to Caiaphas, though it could have been known to him. And then she says, to this appeal, you know, tell us if you're the Messiah. I put you under oath. I adjure you. And then she says, quoting Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse seven, there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak, right? She, she references it here. To this appeal, Christ could not remain silent. There was a time to be silent in a time to speak. If Jesus had not spoken, she says, his silence would have been perceived as a disrespect for the law, as a disrespect for Torah, right? Because he's being, there's, a, there's an injunction here, you know, at the, at the very name of God, the living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true creator God, that he has to tell the truth. And so to have said nothing would have been perceived as slighting Torah and slighting the great truth of monotheism, that there is one God before whom we are to tell the truth, right? Before whom we will be judged. So then he calmly says, oh, 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 I loved this. She quotes, and I, man, Illinois is so good at this, just drawing in really great passages of scripture from earlier that capture what's happening here. And she does it. She quotes Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus had said to his disciples, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. Now by his own example, he repeated the lesson. In other words, Jesus wasn't gonna say to them, hey, look, if you're brought into a situation, do not deny me and I won't deny you. He couldn't hear deny his father and deny his own divinity by saying nothing. And so he, he sets a good example here for his disciples and for us who would live centuries later. Uh, and so he just calmly says, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, and this must have sounded absolutely mind-bogglingly strange to everybody in attendance. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. This is all, that's all Danielic Im imagery. That's all Daniel 7. And coming on the clouds of heaven. All of that's Daniel 7. And it would have been known. He is referencing the glorified Son of Man in Daniel chapter seven, that is seated in the judgment scene. This would have been known. Uh, and then I love this, for a moment, the divinity of Christ flashed through his guise of humanity. She says this again and again, right? There's these, these, these moments, these instances where there was the flash of divinity, the flash of divinity, the flash of divinity, and she says it here. And I love the use of this verb, especially as a birder. The high priest quailed 
before the penetrating eyes of the Savior. To be honest, I didn't even know that quail could be a verb, but as a birder and someone who has observed, seen, and photographed lots of quail, it's a great word because quail are notoriously skittish. And, and it's such a perfect word. I mean, you can, you can have a group of quail in front of you, a bevy of quail, and you can just lift your camera ever so slightly, and they just cower. And so it's, I just love the use of that word there. The high priest quailed before the penetrate. He winced before the penetrating eyes of the Savior. That look seemed to read his hidden thoughts and burn into his heart. Never in his afterlife did he forget that searching glance of the persecuted Son of God. That reminded me of, remember what Jesus had said back on page 818? Let me just remind you of it. Listen to this. Turning to the priests and elders, Christ's Christ fixed on them a searching glance. The words he spoke, they would never forget as long as life should last. You come out against me with swords and staves as you would against a thief or a robber. But day by day, I sat teaching in the temple. You had every opportunity of laying hands on me and you did nothing. The night is better suited to your work. This is your hour and the power of darkness. She says they never forgot that. They never forgot that rebuke. And here she says, that he never, after this, did he forget that look, that glance. Because, I mean, there's an incredible, like, nuclear thing happening here where Caiaphas, the high priest, a symbol of Christ, right, the, the, the shadow of Christ, the type of Christ, is now condemning the substance, condemning the antitype. I mean, there's something nuclear going on here, something really, really important, and and granular and hard to fully understand. And so when Jesus gives him that look, it was, it was a divine look. It was a spirit-piercing look. And he ne- it was burned into his conscience and he never forgot it. Hopefully he repented. It's totally possible. Scripture doesn't say he didn't. So it's entirely possible that, that he repented. We don't know. Hereafter, Jesus said, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Again, that's all Daniel, Daniel 7. In these words, Christ presented the reverse of the scene taking place there. I thought that was really cool, right? Because the scene in Daniel 7 is the Son of Man standing before the books being opened and the judgment is seated and the Ancient of Days is there. It's the heavenly court scene, the heavenly judgment scene. And this kangaroo court, this travesty of justice that's taking place here is when Jesus says, hereafter you will see this, it's the reversal. By the way, that suggestion, right, that um, hint of Daniel 7 was not lost on people who were familiar with Torah. They would have known this, right? In other words, Jesus wasn't just saying, after this, you're going to see, I'm going to be super powerful. That's not what's happening here. Jesus is purposefully referencing the judgment scene of Daniel 7 by using the language of clouds and power and the right hand of the Most High or the Ancient of Days and and Son of Man. All of that Danielic language would have instantly called to mind people who were much more familiar with Torah than you or I might be or Old Testament. Um, Oh, he's referencing Daniel 7. They knew that he was describing a reversal, a total reversal of the present situation. And this maddened them all the more. She actually says at the beginning of the next paragraph that those words, again, the reference to to Daniel and the judgment scene there, startled the high priest. Jumping down to the middle of that paragraph, for a moment he saw the fearful spectacle of the graves giving up their dead. 
with the secrets he had hoped were forever hidden. For a moment he felt, he saw, he felt as if standing before the eternal judge whose eye, which sees all things, was reading his soul. Whoa. Bringing to light mysteries supposed to be hidden with the dead. Right? Like Jesus like, and the spirit just goes, and just gives him like a little moment of prophetic clarity. And he like sees in like sci-fi type, you know, fashion, whoa, this guy is the son of man. And he sees the dead coming up out of their graves and the secrets that he had hidden and the hypocrisy of his life. And uh, absolutely incredible. So then in response to that, he is further, in the words of Ellen White, maddened by satanic fury. That's the next paragraph. Now he was maddened by satanic fury. Was this man a prisoner before him to assail his most cherished theories, rending his robe that the people might see his pretended horror? It's all a show. It's all theater. He demanded that without further preliminaries, the prisoner be condemned for blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses, he said. And here again, the, the maddening of satanic fury is contrasted with Jesus' calm, his poise, his self-possession, his serenity, his godlike dignity. Okay? She then makes this great point referencing Joel 2, 13, where the prophet says, don't rend your garments, rend your hearts. She says that he could have rend his heart. The opportunity was there. It was presented before him in that moment, in that flash of divinity. He could have rend, rent his heart, could have torn his heart, but instead he tore his clothes. And then she makes this great point from Leviticus 10, 6, that it was actually unlawful for the priest to tear off the garments because, again, he is the type. He symbolizes Jesus. And if, if his garment comes off, then his nakedness is seen. It's actually mentioned in the book of Revelation, right? The shame of your nakedness. This is why the priest's garments went right down to the wrist and all the way down to the ankle, right? And they wore a hat and they were cut so that, the, so that their skin, they were not seen. What was seen was um, a model or a type of Christ. So in the rending of the garment, in a weird, terrible, prophetic way, he's literally taking off the righteousness of Christ and showing his own unrighteousness, his own cruelty, his own, she uses the word in the next uh, few pages here, his own, let me just find it here. Oh, I thought I marked it. Oh, maybe I didn't. He shows his own cruelty and his own unrighteousness. Oh, where is that? It's going to drive me crazy. Maybe it's in the Judas chapter. Ah, it's in the Judas chapter. We'll get there. Um, Okay. So she then spends several paragraphs on this. Several paragraphs, even a couple pages. On She talks about how the garment was like a prophecy of of, uh, Israel tearing itself away from Yahweh. Um, I'm on page 832, 710 of the original. When Caiaphas tore his garment, that's how the paragraph begins. When Caiaphas tore his garment, his act was significant of the place that the Jewish nation as a nation would thereafter occupy toward God. The once favored people of God were separating themselves from him. It's important to note the direction of separation there. God wasn't separating him from himself from them. They were separating themselves from him, from being an important word there. Uh, and we're fast becoming a people owned by Jehovah. Jehovah didn't just disown them, you know, serendipitously or just like casually. No, they were becoming 
people that were separating themselves from him. And the tearing of the garment, she says, was like a prophecy. It like symbolized. Um, And then she compares it to the tearing of the veil uh, described in the Gospels, the veil being torn from top to bottom. Uh, It says here, uh, he... The Holy Watcher declared that the Jewish people had rejected him who was the anti-type of all their types, the substance of all their shadows. Great writing. Israel was divorced from God. Right? So the, the tearing of the, of the garment is like a prophecy. Right? It's a symbol of the thing. In violation of the law, Leviticus 10.6, you appear to be pretending to be upholding this devotion to the law. This real fastidious concern about the law and about blasphemy and, and it's all a show, right? And so she says it's a fitting, a fitting uh, emblem of Israel's own precarious situation nationally. Not individual Jews, of course, but nationally they were forsaking their covenantal standing, their unique covenantal standing. Um, so then she says when Jesus is shuttled now into the Sanhedrin, that he was not protected, and this is where people really let into him. All the satanic elements of their nature, Christ's very nobility and godlike bearing, goaded them to madness. His meekness, his innocence, his majestic patience filled them with hatred born of Satan. Mercy and justice were trampled on. Incredible. So she's saying here, again, this is the point of contrast. As he's shuttled now into the presence of the Sanhedrin, it's very early in the morning, the light might just be starting to come up, and uh, then she, you know, the, the frame switches to Peter and John. So we go from, you know, Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin. And then now she's sort of scene change and she's going to talk about Peter and John. John had come in initially and then Peter had gone just sort of in the outer court there. And she tells the story of Peter, Peter's denial and his denial with cursing and swearing. Woman, I don't know him. And I love this line, man. This is so insightful. Go to the paragraph on page 834, 711 or 712 that begins, Peter had not designed, Peter had not designed, and jump down about two sentences deep there. If, if Peter had been called to fight for his master, he would have been a courageous soldier. But when the finger of scorn was pointed at him, he proved himself a coward. Okay, So this is such a great point about the nature of violence. We associate violence with courage and violence with bravery. And it's not that those can't sometimes overlap, but it's more courageous and much more difficult to remain calm under accusation where you know you're gonna receive incredible scrutiny from your peers and from those around you. Like any, here's the point. Anyone can throw a punch. I've thrown some punches in my life. I've been punched in my life a few times. I used to be a bit of a scrapper when I was in uh, junior high and high school because I was a wrestler and, and just kind of full of myself and I've, I've been in my fair share of fist fights. It's easy to fight. Uh, no, I'm not talking about the skill of fighting, right? The people that do mixed martial arts and those people, are, that's a skill. But what I'm saying is it's easy just to resort to your basest, you know, most bestial of sort of, passions and just start throwing fists or grabbing and trying to hurt, right? And she says, if, if Peter had been asked to do that, no problem, happy, happy to oblige. But when he had to endure scorn and had to, to bear under the scrutiny 
of people who were thinking wrong thoughts about him and he had to, like Jesus was, have that calm bearing, that serenity, he couldn't do it. So just in that, what's easier and what's harder? It's much easier to just resort to the lowest common denominator of physical violence than to carry yourself with a dignity and a compassion and a kindness even to those that are heaping insults upon you or unkindness upon you. And Peter cowered before a girl. He cowered before a a young servant girl, but he was ready with a sword to fend off a mob of violent people because violence is easy. That's why Jesus said, take your sword and put it away because those that live by the sword die by the sword. Violence is the lowest common denominator. When violence is occurring, very, very often, in fact, almost always, uh, you have left behind the realm of critical and careful thinking and creative thinking, okay? So I just love that point. If he had been called to fight for his master, no problem. He would have been a courageous soldier. But when the finger of scorn was pointed at him by a girl and by others, by onlookers, he showed himself to be a coward. Uh, She says in the next paragraph that Peter was surprised and angry that he should humiliate himself and his followers by submitting to such treatment. That phrase there, and his followers, is the key phrase there, isn't it? Peter's reputation is bound up with Jesus and Jesus is taking a hit right now, literally and figuratively. Like Jesus, Jesus is going from the pinnacle into the valley, quick, smart, and all of a sudden, Peter's reputation, he's got three years with this guy, he's three years deep. And so that, that phrase there, he was surprised and angry that Jesus should humiliate himself and his followers by submitting to such treatment. So what's really happening here is that not unlike Judas, by the way, remember we pointed out the similarity in the foot washing service between Judas and Peter. And Judas and Peter felt very similarly about the foot washing service, that this was humiliating and degrading, but where Judas was willing to separate, Peter was not. But here, Peter shows a further manifestation of that frustration that Jesus would allow himself to be thus treated and then the, the reflection that that has, the implication that that has on him as a disciple of Jesus caused him to be, she says, angry and surprised and humiliated. So then, you know, I don't know him, the cursing, the swearing, um, and then the look, right? The, the look, one of the gospel accounts, I think it's the, the, is it the John or the Luke account, is that Jesus sees Peter and just gives him a look. In the same way that just moments before he had given a look to Caiaphas, he gives the look, and listen to this. He looked full upon his poor disciple, and at the same time, Peter's eyes were drawn to his master. In that gentle countenance, he read deep pity and sorrow, but there was no anger there. Friends, I want you to feel that. I want you to feel that when you have just committed your stupidest sin, your your most ridiculous sin, the sin that you yourself would look upon with considerable embarrassment in retrospect. When Jesus looks at you, his attitude toward you, his posture toward you is gentle and pitying and sorrowful, not anger. I've been preaching through the book of Galatians in this little local church that I help pastor here. And we preached on Galatians 2 yesterday, but last Sabbath we were in Galatians 1. And the first thing that Paul says to the Galatian Christians is grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. 
God's posture toward even those that are erring and making terrible mistakes and even departing from the gospel as the Galatians were doing and who are denying with bitter cursing and swearing, God's posture toward you is not altered by your behavior. God's posture toward you is a posture of grace and peace. It's a posture of sorrow and pity and tenderness. And yet we imagine that God's posture toward us is one of annoyance, frustration, anger, and then we respond in kind, but it's a vicious cycle. If we can break out of that cycle and say, wait a minute, even in the midst of my most embarrassing sin, God's attitude toward me, his, his posture toward me is still a posture of grace and peace and pity and mercy and sadness and sorrow for me. It just can break the cycle of sin and we can find ourselves as Peter is going to falling at the feet of Jesus and confessing your sin. He wins us, right? He wins us by his beautiful character, by the way that he treats us, even when we're in the midst of our most humiliating and, and embarrassing sins. You know, ones that have just been predicted a few hours before and you've resolutely resisted. She says it pierced his heart like an arrow. A tide of memories rushed over him. I'm just reading some lines here. He reflected with horror upon his own ingratitude, his falsehood, his perjury. He realized that he had added to the burden of Jesus. That's what we talked about in the Gethsemane chapter. How their sleep and their stupor and their unwillingness to participate with Jesus in his sufferings actually increased Jesus' suffering and, and sorrow. She says he added to the heaviest burden. Um, she then says, she makes this great point, that in sleeping through the night in Gethsemane, they had missed an opportunity to be prepared for what was coming here. That if they hadn't slept, they would have had the, the strength and the ability and the courage to stand with Jesus in this trying hour. And God knows what would have happened. We don't know. But because they had slept, she says, sleeping in that critical hour, they had sustained a great loss. Then they bring it before the Sanhedrin. They ask the same question. Just tell us if you're the son of God. Jesus responds again, you rightly say that I am. Then they say, what further testimony do we need? And so she says, by the third condemnation of the, of the authorities, Jesus was to die. And then I'm just gonna go read there, jump to the paragraph right toward the very end. For me, it's the last page. When the condemnation of Jesus was pronounced by the judges, a satanic fury took possession of the people. The roar of voices was like that of wild beasts. The crowd made a rush toward Jesus, crying, he is guilty, put him to death. Now watch this. Had it not been for the Roman soldiers, Jesus would not have lived to be nailed to the cross of Calvary. He would have been torn in pieces before the judges had not the Roman authority interfered and by force of arms restrained the violent mob. Heathen men were angry at the brutal treatment the, the, the soldiers, the, the non-Jewish people were angry at the brutal treatment of one against whom nothing had even been proved. The Roman officers declared that the Jews in pronouncing condemnation upon Jesus were infringing upon the Roman power and that it was even against the Jewish law to condemn a man and to put him to death upon his own testimony. This intervention brought a momentary lull in the proceedings, but the Jewish leaders were dead alike to pity and to shame. Jump down to the very last paragraph. The angels of God faithfully recorded every insulting look word and act against their beloved commander. One day, the base men who scorned and spat upon the calm, pale face of Christ will look upon it in its glory, shining brighter than the sun. There's a lot of, um, there's some echoes there of what happens in the book of Acts, where Paul 
is repeatedly rescued by the Romans. The Romans interpose between Paul and his Jewish accusers. And one of the tales that's told by Luke and Acts over and again is Rome coming to the rescue of Paul. Rome and Paul are, are friends. They're not working at cross purposes. In fact, Paul even makes his appeal to Caesar, right? So, so this is fascinating here that the, the Gentiles interpose and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This is getting out of hand quickly. And she says that if, if they hadn't done that, that, that he would have been torn to pieces. Well, the same thing happened with Paul in the temple. If the Roman guards hadn't showed up, he was gonna be torn to bits when he was recognized there um, during the purification ceremony in, what is it, Acts 22. So what was your word? I wanna know what your word was. My word occurs in that last paragraph, but don't go looking for it. I wanna know what your word was for this chapter. We've already gone over an hour. We're probably only going to get through one chapter. That's okay. That's okay. It's better to dwell on this. We won't rush ahead. We'll do Judas tomorrow. We always knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen. There's too much goodness here. We couldn't rush through it. What was your word? Groupthink, kangaroo court, judgment, examine. Ah, Bernice. That was my word as well. That was my word as well. Accused, convicted. Oh, DJ Jimrat says, I'm paddleboarding and listening to this. Well, I'm glad you're tuning in. Um, serenity, great. Um, bruises, I don't quite understand that one, David, but I, I like what you've done there with the capitalization. Injustice, trying, calm, rent. Yeah, five Carson's 05, that's my word as well. Oh, a lot of people had my word. Okay, E. Daniels 2, same, calm. <clears throat> Contrast, calm, serene, Gabby Abby, same. Those, that was my word. Confess, says Jose. Cruel conviction. Oh, very good, Cassandra. Internal conviction of the spirit and external conviction of Jesus by the religious authorities. Great insight. Condemned, calm, condemnation, contrast, silence, mercy. Mm. Oh, the trials were a ruse. Gotcha. I thought that's what you were doing, David. Excellent. Uncomplainingly, says Chuck. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I loved the use of that word there. And, and that word is just a synonym of calm, uncomplainingly. A lot of the words here sort of reflect that. Peace, dignity, calm, serenity, exactly. K says the same thing. K, K Gavender, 568, dignity. Yeah, my word was calm. In fact, I kind of had, uh, you know, I like to do this. In my word, I had some ideas behind it. So you'll notice I've got three little lines here, three little points here, calm. Number one, I put the calm after Gethsemane, right? So we've just come out of Gethsemane and Jesus has been crushed under the terrifying burden of human sin. And this is like a little breather, right? It doesn't seem like it because externally it's total chaos, but this allows Jesus to gather himself and it's the calm after Gethsemane. Then number two, of course, is Jesus' attitude and his bearing and his words. And then number three, I put this is the calm before the capital S storm, Calvary. So I saw a lot of calm here, right? Just after Gethsemane and Jesus bearing, she says that word, I think five times, calm or calmly, and then a number of synonyms to the word calm. And then this is just the calm before the storm, right? Calvary is going to be the, the consummation of what began in Gethsemane when he was numbered with the transgressors. And so let's do our rubric now. Oh, conviction, says Gay Main 44. 
Caiaphas was convicted, but he didn't act. Peter was convicted and wept bitterly. Jesus was convicted by the mob falsely. Excellent. Yeah, I like that. I love that sort of multifaceted um, application. Hust Rome says, I love it when the waves of trial hit me against the rock of ages. Mm. Well, you're a better person than I am. I don't love it. I tolerate it. I try to get better at it. But when trials come to me, I'm, I'm trying to escape as fast as possible, should the truth be told. Okay, let's go through our rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and then claiming the promise of the Spirit's power. Okay, what was the point of this chapter? Obviously, the point of this chapter, yours would be different than mine probably, but to desire the mockery, excuse me, not to desire, to describe, to describe the mockery of a trial and the trampling of, of justice that led to Jesus' formal accusation as a criminal deserving of death. That's clearly what's on display here. Okay, what do we learn about the person of God or of Jesus here? Here's what I wrote. Jesus, hmm, Jesus, well, perfectly. a while, is that what I meant there? I can't even read my own handwriting. A was, hmm, perfectly patient, uncomplaining, and calm. Okay, that must be was. Jesus was perfectly patient, uncomplaining, and calm in the face of incredible hostility, both human and satanic. So the calmness, the calmness, the dignity, the, and the lack of anger. Man, that really impressed me. When he looks at Peter and she says, there was no anger there. Sympathy, yes. Tenderness, yes. Sorrow, yes. All of that, but not anger. God is not angry at you. God loves you. Your dad might have been angry at you at times and you might get angry at your children and your mom might have been angry at you and it's easy to project those authority figures that have been angry with us onto the supreme authority figure, but God is not angry with you. God loves you deeply and dearly and wants to save you eternally. Beautiful. Okay, how do we pray this chapter? I wrote, God help me to behold Jesus and his trust in you even in the midst of this storm, teach me how to trust more. For me, I mean, how is Jesus able to stay so calm there? It has to be trust, right? Like it has to be that he is just leaning into his father's love and care. He has such a confidence and such a conviction about the goodness of God that he just says, come what may, I'm gonna trust, Come what may, I'm gonna lean into the goodness of God. And so I wanna learn how to do that. I wanna learn, especially when there's false accusation. I haven't, I haven't suffered under a lot of false accusation in my life. Some, some, like we all have. But, um, you know, I've had people say some things about me that I just knew were flatly untrue. And uh, the temptation that I have, and I can say, I can, I can honestly say that the David of 10 or 15 years ago would have fired off a long email if I had been unfairly accused. I mean, some funny things have been said about me and, and some people even that have styled themselves as my friends and colleagues in ministry have sometimes manifested, you know, some really less than godly behavior. And, and again, this is, these are the exceptions, not the rule. And I have, you know, in the past, I've fired off some emails. I've gotten into some back and forths, but I needed to practice um, what I was telling my sons, let truth be thy consolation. You know, if people are saying false things about you, so what? Lean into God. Let God be 
the, the, the caretaker of your reputation, right? Like, like God can take care of your reputation. Your reputation is of no consequence, right? Like let God be your defender. Let the truth be your consolation. And that feeds, of course, into practice. I wrote here, not to retaliate or defend myself against absurd accusations and unfounded accusations, but to trust God to vindicate my character and my reputation. I mean, the truth is I'm a sinner in need of a savior. So there's not a lot to defend here anyway, right? Not a lot to defend here anyway, but it, it has been upsetting to me in the past when people have said, oh, David is a fill in the blank. And I'm like, that's not even true. That, that's not true. And then I want to go tell these people that it's not true. Now, if there's a sincere inquiry about something I've said or something that I, okay, I can receive that and we can have a conversation back and forth. But the, the reflexive, instinctive desire to, to stand up against somebody that's accusing me so that I am not perceived, I mean, that was what Peter's concern was, right? Peter was like, I don't want to be perceived as with that guy. And so he retaliates. Um, I don't want to care what people think about me if it's based on bad faith accusations and bad faith thinking. And, you know, again, if it's a sincere inquiry, I'm happy, happy to interact. And so God help me. In fact, there's this incredible line in the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, where, and we'll go through that book together um, soon, I hope. But, but she says in there that we, when we defend ourselves and when we try to stand up and protect our reputation, we actually um, are worse than those that are making the accusations against us. We lower ourselves below the accusations and uh, below those that are making the accusations. And so, yeah, yeah. And that's not easy to do because it's pride, it's a sense of self, it's a sense of, you know, it's tough to to just say, you know, what other people think of me is none of my business. And um, yeah, that's my that's my practical point. So let's pray and claim the Spirit's power. Uh, we didn't get through Judas today. No surprise there. Big apologies, but not really. Sorry, not sorry. Um, please remember to pray for me today that this wedding goes well. It's still cloudy and yucky and rainy, and it's really supposed to pick up this afternoon. So um, God bless you all. Hope you have an absolutely wonderful day wherever you are. And let's just use these last you know, a couple weeks here of DA with DA to just ground ourselves in the crucified Christ. Remember what Paul said, God forbid that I should, that I should, oh no, what am I, what am I, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the Christ and him crucified by which the world is crucified unto me and I to him. I was trying to think of the, I desire to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. I mean, this is it. This is the real focal point. And we're gonna be, I think we have Judas and then what we have in Pilate's court maybe, and then we're at Calvary. So we're right here at the pointy end of the spear and let's use this week as an opportunity to really marinate in a God who gave everything for us. I mean, everything. And whose attitude and whose posture toward us is a posture of grace and peace. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you and we know that that is not the big story. The big story is not our reflective love to you. It's your initiating love to us. Uh, Father, you love us and therefore we love you as a, as a response to that. Um, Father, help us to live in the light of that love and Father, help us not to go down the paths that we see before us here in Annas, Caiaphas, and then Judas tomorrow. Father, when that convicting power of the Spirit comes to us, teach us to respond instantly 
and not to tamper with sin, not to silence or quiet convictions. Um, Father, help us to take seriously the convictions of the Spirit. And I want to pray a special prayer, Father, that you will give us the ability, the capacity, the power, um, even the desire to be calm and dignified and self-possessed in the midst of false accusations or unkindness or cruelty or unfairness. Um, Father, help us to, to behold the suffering, crucified, falsely accused Christ, and then to reflect that to the world around us. Father, the time is going to come where Christians will be under greater and greater persecution and great, greater and greater persecution and greater and greater scrutiny. And so, Father, may we now, in the little things, be uh, preparing ourselves, exercising ourselves, so that, uh, yeah, when the big trials come, we are practiced. Father, give us your spirit. It's not gonna be in our feeble strength, but your spirit that we're ever able to, to bear up as Jesus bore up here. And uh, we believe you can do it in us and through us, not by, not by our power, certainly not, and not by our strength, but by your goodness and by the infilling of the spirit. And we pray all of this in the saving, powerful, beautiful uh, name of Jesus Christ. Amen.